Welcome to Twill, the Week in Health Law, the safe harbor podcast of record for the discussion of health law and policy. We're recording this episode on March 8th, 2016. I'm Nicholas Terry, a law professor at Indiana University McKinney School of Law in Indianapolis, and my co-host is... Frank Pasquale, a law professor at the University of Maryland School of Law in Baltimore, Maryland. And this week on Twill, we're pleased to welcome Athemios Parasitis, professor of law at The Ohio State University where he also holds a joint appointment with the College of Public Health and is a faculty affiliate of the College of Medicine Center for Bioethics and Medical Humanities. Currently, he also holds a Greenwall Foundation Faculty Scholar in Bioethics Fellowship. His scholarship focuses on the regulation of medical products and human subjects research, the interplay between health law and intellectual property, and the application of health information technology to public health policy. Hi there, Athemi. Hi, Nick and Frank. Thanks for having me. All right. Well, we've we've been away from contemporary issues for a couple of weeks, Frank. So a couple of things have hit my desk that I think are, are deserving of a good twilling. The first is the um, Gobile against uh, Liberty Mutual case. Uh, this is a case that regular listeners might uh, remember that friend of the show Nick Bagley uh, highlighted as one he was uh, concerned about in our Naughty or Nice uh, holiday show. And I'm afraid uh, Nick has been uh, sadly uh, disappointed. The background here is that uh, Vermont and 17 other states, for that matter, have what are called all-payer claims databases. And this appears to be a genuine attempt to increase transparency with regard to healthcare prices. However, in a six to two opinion, the Supreme Court held that ERISA preempted uh, Vermont's law, uh, thus putting into jeopardy uh, the other 17 as well. And the effect, according to uh, an incidental economist post by Bagley, uh, will be to strip out uh, data about self-insuring employers. That's about two-thirds of the data. I'm going to go straight to Justice Ginsburg's dissent. As she put it, she dissented from, quote, the court's retrieval of preemption doctrine that belongs in the discard bin. I thought she only spoke sense in her opinion, noting that the Vermont state statute and ERISA serve very different purposes. Um, after all, uh, the former is not, the Vermont statute is not interested in the bargain between the employer and the employee. Um, secondly, this didn't really involve, quote, a central matter of plan administration. Third, in her view, there is a presumption, or in her view and in decided case law, there's a presumption against preemption. And that the burden placed on the plan administrator here was minimal, given in the justice's words, quote, the technological capacity for efficient computer-based storage, formatting, and submission. And here's a nugget, another nugget, sure to find its way into a Terry Pasquale or Parasitis Law Review article. Quote, when regulatory compliance depends on the use of evolving technologies, it should be incumbent on the objector to show concretely what the allegedly regulatory burden in fact entails. Now, Bagley notes that a workaround might be to require providers to collect the data 
or maybe the uh, Labor Department could collect data and then pass it back to the states. Um, but those workarounds are expensive and clumsy. And I noted a uh, coincidentally a new health affairs piece this week by uh, Casalino and colleagues that suggests that U.S. physician practices spend more than 15.4 billion annually to report quality measures, and that more efficient reporting models are needed, which tends to suggest that maybe uh, pushing this over to the providers is not the best way to go. Ah, thanks so much, Nick. That was really a great summary of a complex case. And I think just to represent the other side, since uh, Dwill and Nick Bagley have done uh, such a great job of uh, taking on the, the case here, and just to give some articulation of the data-gathering skeptics, I guess I would only note that if we look at, for example, the reports of the um, OFR, the Office for Financial Research, established under Dodd-Frank to gather data about the financial industry, there is concern that much of the most important data to gather it would require some new forms of data gathering and recording and monitoring by the firms that are regulated. That type of worry, I think, motivated a lot of the majority opinion uh, in the case. But on the other hand, as um, Nick Bagley has noted, as other commentators at SCOTUS blog have noted, um, there was a real concern that there was this kind of a slippery slope argument going on and not enough critical analysis of whether this would be a slippery slope of regulatory burden. Well, I'm going to take the liberty, actually, at this point, uh, to say a big congrats uh, to my co-host, to Nick Terry, for being invited to the White House for the Precision Medicine. Uh, there was a Precision Medicine meeting uh, where important news was made. And I was wondering, Nick, if you could just give us a sense of what it was like to be at the center of the uh, policymaking push uh, for Precision Medicine. Well, let me first point out that it was uh, it wasn't just me and the president. Uh, uh, we, we were we were we we were surrounded by two hundred and fifty of our closest friends. Um, it was an extraordinary day, one of those days that one will never forget. Obviously, um, we were in the the Roosevelt Building, um, and uh, there was an incredibly compelling. Um, briefing by Francis Collins uh, and others from NIH, uh, physicians, um, patients, survivors um, about precision medicine. And then the highlight was the president uh, coming out and sitting on a panel uh, for about 40 minutes discussing this. Um, and I, I, I can't imagine uh, that there have been too many occasions when a sitting president has agreed to just sit on a panel. Uh, because he did speak, but he also listened, and it was really quite compelling. And then um, thereafter, uh, there was a closed-door meeting in which uh, myself and uh, some other privacy and security folks and agency folks and White House folks uh, uh, discussed the privacy and security proposals, guidelines that the uh, PMI has published so far. And I think that might be worth a discussion on Twill at some time to, to look at uh, exactly what is going on there. But it was a remarkable day. Absolutely. And, you know, I also, we are lucky enough to have a theme on today who I remember reading his article on patients over profits and, you know, the various interventions he's made in precision medicine. So, Athemi, did you have a comment on this uh, or, or the earlier topic? Sure, I'd love to jump in. Well, first, Nick, congratulations. It's both an acknowledgement of your fantastic work and uh, a precursor 
course, of great things to come. So it sounds like a wonderful opportunity and experience. Um, one or two things I wanted to jump in on, on on the Gobiel case. I think it's interesting if you actually look at Thomas's concurring opinion, where he almost puts out there this notion that um, ERISA preemption has perhaps gone too far. I mean, the ERISA preemption doctrine or, or um, provision is arguably the most inartfully drafted preemption provision out there in the health law world. And I think that he actually highlights the fact that maybe the Supreme Court is taking this too far um, and that they need to revisit whether Congress actually has the ability to grant um, such a broad-reaching preemption doctrine if, in fact, all these cases are true to the, to the meaning of, of the statute. So although my bias, I will admit, is, is with Ginsburg's um, dissent, I think that this is um, bad news for those who are in favor of pharmacovigilance and using big data to help guide health, health decision-making. Um, I think there might be some hope that this actually can motivate reevaluating ERISA preemption uh, at, a, at a global scale. Uh, regular listeners will recoil in horror at any further update on, on the Meaningful Use program. But I'm guessing that many of you will have been following Politico's coverage from HIMSS last week, uh, uh, particularly with the the look of uh, ONC apparently doubling down on health IT and not just to fix interoperability. Uh, my contribution here is the other side of that two-headed coin that is meaningful use, uh, the certification of EHRs. Um, ONC has released a new uh, MPRM. Um, for them, it, it's a it's a, a modest 113 pages, um, and it moves away from the model that the agency has adopted since high tech, um, a model that involved essentially delegating its powers to outside standards and testing bodies. Now it seems ONC wants to be directly involved, or at least more directly involved, and seems particularly interested in the integration of EHRs with other health information technologies, and also safety issues. Um, so I guess my question uh, to both of you um, is this uh, an attempt by ONC to be the consumer reports of HIT or the FDA of HIT? Ah, a great framing. And I guess all that I will point to at this point is uh, my North Carolina Law Review article from 2014 called Private Certifiers and Deputies in American Healthcare, where I explore the ability of these private entities to incorporate public values, um, especially the challenges that arise when, say, the deputies or the certifiers have financial interests in, say, uh, certifying as rapidly as possible um, and raise some questions about it. And I'm hoping that essentially we have a government entity that will move beyond, say, the mere uh, uh, ranking and rating function to at least uh, putting forward some bare minimum standards because I think there is you know, documentation in the legal literature, at least, of some real safety concerns. I think those are great points, Frank, and, and I agree this is an issue that pops up um, in various contexts. You sort of look at the notion of uh, a private regulator and whether or not the ability of um, an agency to outsource its obligation or responsibility to to fulfill these consumer protection functions, whether it actually brings better outcomes. Um, maybe it's just another form of regulatory capture. Maybe it's actually uh, a reality of, of the ability of agencies to fulfill their mandates and sort of this notion of, you know, gross underfunding for agencies, you know, such as the FDA, for example. Fine points uh, from you both. Uh, I, I suspect providers and developers of uh, these technologies, however, will be uh, focusing on one word that appears uh, in the announcement, the word is audit. 
always a favorite. So <laughs> let's uh, turn on to uh, today's topics, uh, main topics, and uh, a look at the wonderful work of our guest. And uh, the, the first place uh, we're going um, also involves uh, an area of law that I think some of us would argue uh, kind of like uh, ERISA is being uh, uh, over uh, interpreted, uh, so maybe also uh, the First Amendment is uh, uh, looking uh, a little suspect these days, uh, courtesy of uh, the Supreme Court. And Athemi, you've been doing some uh, work in the food labeling uh, arena, and I wonder if you could start us off gently with how uh, food labeling and the First Amendment uh, tie together and the kind of work that you've been doing in this area. Sure, glad to do so, Nick. Um, so, my interest in food labeling in the First Amendment actually took off um, in part because of what I saw a troubling trend in jurisprudence on how the commercial speech doctrine was being interpreted, um, but also some interesting notion of how the role of scientists and the role of um, policy experts ties in with legal expertise. Uh, in that respect, what I mean is using regulatory science to help further um, either regulations or different state-based laws, um, and here in the context of, of food labels. So I'll give you an example. Um, in the context of the First Amendment, a lot has been talked about recently in the food label world on GM labels, um, but also on the use of the words natural or all natural on, on food. I'm sure just about all of us have purchased something that has on its label natural or all natural. Um, probably few of us actually know what that means or how it's actually defined by the FDA. And in fact, the FDA has not even defined the term, although recently it's put out a call for notice and comment on whether it actually should define the term natural. So one of the projects that I'm working on, along with some um, a food science expert and a food policy expert here at Ohio State, is actually measuring in the lab how consumers perceive the words natural and unnatural on food labels. So I'll briefly discuss uh, one of the projects that we've done and see if you guys have any questions about it. Um, essentially, what we did is we took um, a jar of peanut butter that's labeled as all natural. And we went into, or we used a lab that's called an immersive sensory technology lab. So just again, a two minute version on food science, traditional food science labs, sort of people testing different foods to see how what consumer preferences are, are usually con conducted in a sort of white, small painted room that's very sterile. There's a person sitting in a chair, a little window and sort of samples of food are passed pass through the window into the person actually being um, the research subject, and then that subject um, describes their, their reactions to the food. Well, a new model in, in food science is this, what they call immersive sensory technology, which is essentially a room that's set up with a massive screen, probably about 10 by 12 feet in size, where different smells can be pumped into the room, different sounds, and the goal is to mimic as close as possible a real-world shopping experience. So, so what we did is we used this type of lab, and there are only a handful of these across the country, um, and we, went, we first went into a, a um, supermarket, filmed someone who was basically there, literally set up at a little stand, handing out samples of peanut butter and saying, you know, come please try our peanut butter. Um, we went through a couple of different strips, the, uh, scripts. The first was asking the consumers to basically just try two sample peanut butters that were unlabeled. The next script was asking them, asking them to sample two peanut butters. One of them um, had the, the word natural on it, and the other label was exactly the same, except it did not have the word natural on it. 
And the third script was having the server um, call out the fact that one of the labels had the word natural while one did not. And then after sampling all of those, we asked the consumers to basically rate their preferences on how they valued um, the food itself. And what we found um, was a pretty significant correlation uh, at a number of different levels. So when it came to the blind test as opposed to the label review, there was a significant increase in the ratings of quality of the peanut butter, um, and a significant rating in the, the notion that the one labeled natural had a higher nutritional content. We also saw a willingness of consumers to pay more for the label that was labeled natural or for the peanut butter that was labeled natural over the one that was not. And again, keep in mind, these were the exact same peanut butters that they were trying. What we saw even more surprisingly was at the third point, when we had sort of a verbal cue, a very simple statement um, where the server said, oh, and by the way, did you notice that this peanut butter is made with all natural ingredients? Well, with that verbal cue, the significance of the price increase, the ratings for higher quality, and the notions of a higher nutritional content went up exponentially more. And this led us to believe, or led us to conclude a few things. One is that labels matter. So people pay attention to labels, and when they see the words natural or unnatural, um, they're willing to pay more for them and think that the product actually is, in many respects, better. But even more importantly, we've re we concluded, is that when there's a simple verbal cue out, um, or call out from a, from someone, let's say, working in the supermarket, that itself can have a, a, an important increase. And imagine yourself now walking into a supermarket, seeing you know 50 different peanut butters on the shelf, asking someone who works there, "Hey, do you have any recommendations about one of these peanut butters?" And then saying, and then that person saying to you just casually, "Oh, the ones that are all natural are the ones that I prefer." Well, that simple statement, as it turns out, has, can have a significant impact. And from my perspective, this. Um, underscores the importance of the label itself um, conveying clear and important information to the consumer. And that's one of the things that we're, that we're looking at here, sort of the, the importance of the label itself in conveying um, important information. So I guess that raises the question as to what regulatory spaces these kinds of claims uh, exist in. Um, I know that uh, the states, uh, particularly California, have uh, have done quite a lot of work in this area, and indeed that there are, are lawsuits uh, are permitted there. Um, I know this uh, solely because my wonderful colleague Diana Winters uh, tells me these things. So there really is a mismatch. Um, the USDA is charged with regulating food labels for meat, poultry, and processed eggs. The FDA is responsible for food labels for everything else. And then the FTC is responsible for food advertising. Well, sometimes those overlap. You can imagine, let's say, a box of uh, granola bars where each is individually wrapped and also placed in a box. You know, is the box the self a label? Is it advertising? Uh, there's a little bit of confusion, actually, as to what counts as what. And when you put in the state regulations, even that's another layer of complexion. So, you know, various states, you know, notably Vermont, have enacted GM label laws. Vermont is set to go into effect this summer. Um, other states have enacted laws, but they're basically dormant laws at this point. They're waiting on other states to actually enact laws as well. There have been a number of ballot initiatives. Um, all of them have been shot down on labeling uh, food as genetically modified, but there are a few bills floating around uh, in Congress right now um, looking at GM labeling uh, and, in fact, making some of them say it should be optional, others say it should be compulsory. Some of these laws, or a lot of them actually, um, seek to preempt any state 
um, state-based regulations such as that in Vermont. So it's a, it's a clear hodgepodge. The litigation you're referring to, and Diana and I have actually worked together on some of this, um, a lot of it is based on natural food claims, where the claim is essentially that it's misleading, um, it violates um, consumer fraud statutes. And some of these uh, plaintiffs have been successful and some have not. So again, it's a, you know, litigation is a long and winding road and an expensive one. And it's certainly you know, a piecemeal approach, if anything, to this issue. Well, thanks so much, Athemian. This is definitely going to go into a trend uh, or pattern in Twill episodes where we've discussed the expanding First Amendment, and um, I'll try to highlight some of those prior ones in our show notes. Um, now, in terms of a transition to some of your other work, because I know you're, the things you're working on are so rich, I want to make sure we touch on um, as many as we can. Um, I see that you're working now on the role of big data in the healthcare system as sort of a sword and shield in the fraud context. And I'm, and I really am fascinated by this because I was just reading a book called The Master Algorithm by Pedro Domingos, where he describes, um, arms races of machine learning in various contexts, including in elections. And I'm wondering if you might be able to give our listeners a sense of how big data can be used both, um, to promote and to combat and stop fraud. Yeah, I'd be happy to, Frank. Um, so, in many different ways. So, so big data, t- you know, today is being utilized um, to a large extent in the role of pharmacovigilance, sort of post-market surveillance of approved medical products. Um, a lot of that, though, is being outsourced to third-party vendors. So, you have large pharmaceutical company outsource part of its, um, let's say, FDA responsibilities to a third-party vendor to basically search out for um, any potential safety concerns that may may arise for their for their products. Well, some of the issues where big data can come in to, um, if you will, encourage fraud is when these data, essentially how the data queries are set up when it comes to these 30-party vendors. Are they looking at robust databases? Are they structuring the queries themselves to capture the most relevant information when it comes to adverse events or safety or efficacy concerns? Um, Are they obligated to do so? Again, the pharmaceutical company itself has a legal obligation to report to the FDA what it knows about um, post-market safety and efficacy concerns, but third parties don't have that obligation. Um, It's an interesting query whether or not that obligation um, arises if there's some relationship between a pharmaceutical company and that third-party vendor. So you can see a way where you know perhaps a learning algorithm can actually even be structured to avoid certain types of information or to avoid um, looking at things in a certain way. And again, it's not clear whether or not that is enough to give rise to liability under, let's say, the False Claims Act or under some type of regulatory violation under the, the FDCA, the Federal um, Food, Drug, and Cosmetic Act. To interrupt you, that that is so chilling that the thought of an algorithm being used for regulatory arbitrage. Yeah, and and I think that's exactly right. The the flip side is the government can do the same thing. So the government, you know, a lot of this data, although it's held in private hands, there are many different avenues to, you know, to essentially get similar information from similar databases. If, you know, a private entity has a a patient population of, let's say, 20, 20 million lives and you know, that's outside the bounds of, of unless you can pay for it. Um, that doesn't stop you from getting similar information from a, a sort of a parallel database that may have, you know, more or less lives, but perhaps can raise similar types of issues. So I think if the government, um, and in particular the FDA perhaps, is more proactive in, in their data mining, perhaps through the Sentinel network that has been up and running for, you know, a few months, a year or so now, um, 
that's a real possibility to help in, in fraud protection or fraud prevention. At the same time, what we've seen with the Sentinel network so far is that although it has been useful in bringing up some safety concerns, um, you know, the legal framework hasn't changed. So what I mean by that is that there is no ongoing responsibility on the part of the medical product manufacturer or sponsor to actively search out for, for this information. So again, um, you know, it's going to take time, I think, for, for government and for the agencies to, to get up to speed. Um, but I think there's a lot to be gained here. If you look at the False Claims Act generally, um, some estimates say that over the past five years, it's only recovered about 5% of the estimate fraudulent conduct. Um, so again, uh, one other, you know, potential conflict I'll throw out there is that I have worked on one of these False Claims Act cases and have advised the government on some of these cases. I would like to next uh, move on to your work on what you've described as institutional vaccine skeptics. Um, I think this is a really interesting uh, angle on the vaccine refusal uh, controversy. Uh, it reminds me a little bit of some of the insights of the Cultural Cognition School. So if you might be able to give our listeners uh, your take uh, on some of the under- represented or ignored uh, populations that are leading some of this vaccine skepticism? So again, vaccine skeptics, I think, uh, are often portrayed as sort of misinformed individuals clinging to this unscientific chatter and debunked studies that have linked um, vaccines and autism. And I think that that's true for a small um, but perhaps vocal subset. But I also think that it neglects to account for what are some legitimate concerns when it comes to to vaccine mandates. Um, I think some recent studies have shown uh, a complex picture that casts some vaccine skeptics um, in the context of broader notions of lack of trust in government and in industry. If you look at studies over the past five or six decades, trust in government has decreased from 70-something percent to into the 20s. Um, a lot of this anti-establishment talk that we're seeing in the presidential race right now even underpins, you know, the Tea Party movement or the Occupy Wall Street movement. I mean, there's a lot of anti-establishment feeling out there, and I don't think it's tied necessarily to um, one particular political party. Now, on top of that lack of trust, we see other whistleblower litigation that has brought forth um, allegations showing that the one of the manufacturers of the MMR vaccine has failed to disclose efficacy concerns. Uh, there was a study in NPR within the past year which highlighted some of the limitations of the Vaccine Injury Compensation Fund, which is essentially the program that provides compensation to anyone who's injured um, from a vaccine. And perhaps most importantly, um, at least from my perspective, is something that was highlighted by U.S. Supreme Court Justices Sonia Sotomayor and um, Ruth Bader Ginsburg. And this was in the context of preemption laws and vaccines, childhood vaccines, which this was a case, Brewster v. Wyeth from 2011, where the court in a 6-2 opinion um, affirmed preemption of state tort claims for design defect uh, in the context of vaccines. Um, and essentially what the majority held in that case is that even if there is a safer alternative design for a vaccine that does not lower efficacy but has better safety, um, and the manufacturer chooses not to use that alternative safer design, that the preemption still will apply. And what Sotomayor and Ginsburg say in their dissent is how this essentially creates a regulatory vacuum 
where no one ensures that vac- vaccine manufacturers are really adequately taking into account scientific and technological advancements. So again, I think some of these issues, they're, they're kind of in the weeds um, in the vaccine debate, but I do think that they raise genuine concerns um, with why some people may be skeptical about vaccination. There was another recent study that showed um, one in 25 pediatricians has actually delayed or chosen to withhold um, a vaccine for their child. So again, I think the common narrative um, that we hear um, can take away from some of these important issues. So we know that uh, the the focus of the vaccine skeptics who are individuals has been on maintaining or broadening uh, exemptions from uh, school mandated uh, vaccinations, et cetera, et cetera. Great work by um, our, our friend Ross Silverman on, on this that many of you will be familiar with. What are the institutional players uh, involved in, um, the institutional skeptics? What what kind of framework are they looking at, Athemi? So they're looking at different things. I think, And again, this is uh, this notion of institutional vaccine skepticism. I haven't seen it anywhere. It's something I literally came up with over the past two months. So um, I'm not sure that they're looking into much as a group. I'm not sure that they're really organized as a group, but what I've seen at sort of bits and pieces um, is the following. At one level, there is a challenge of the Vaccine Injury Compensation Fund and how determinations are made. So essentially now, if you or your child suffers an adverse event from a vaccine, there are what they call on-table injuries. And if they're listed on this vaccine injury adverse event table, then compensation is generally awarded by the special masters who review these cases, um, and, you know, life goes on. Um, If you happen to suffer an off-table injury or an adverse event that's not actually linked on the table, there's a fairly high bar for actually uh, proving that the compensation should be awarded. So essentially to get compensation for an off-table injury, the petitioner must show that the vaccine actually caused the injury, which includes not just but-for causation, but also substantial factor um, causation. And there has to be some type of medical theory that causally connects the vaccine and injury that's based on sound and reliable medical or scientific explanation. So, in other words, there needs to be science behind your um, your claim for injury, and there's nothing wrong with that. It makes sense that there would need to be some scientific explanation for the adverse event. The problem is when you look at what or how CDC and FDA actually describe um, the public and their own ability to analyze adverse event data, they highlight that the current framework. Um, doesn't provide that information. So, so right now, what the system we have for adverse event reporting for vaccine injuries is through a system called VAERS that's run through the FDA and CDC. And again, there, it's similar to the drug and medical device context. Um, manufacturers must report what they know. Physicians uh, are not obligated to report vaccine injuries, although they have the option of doing so. And the public has the option as well. So again, not surprising that this results in underreporting of adverse events. And again, a sort of a 2015 publication by FDA and CDC officials um, flatly stated it generally cannot be determined if a vaccine caused an adverse event using VAERS data alone. So again, it makes it very difficult, I think, for this vaccine um, injury compensation time to keep pace with with new developments as it's currently structured. So I think that's one avenue that, that people are pursuing right now. 
Another deals with this this broader notion of preemption, like as Justice Ginsburg and Sotomayor highlighted, whether or not um, the sort of the deal struck um, in the 1980s with with vaccine manufacturers, was, which is essentially a broad preemption uh, provision in exchange for an agreement that, conti- that actually continues staying in in the business, whether that still makes sense. Uh, and again, you know, we're we're living under a 1980s framework for for vaccine preemption, and I think that if we try think about modernizing it, it may be linking preemption to something like more um, proactive uh, post-market review of uh, vaccine safety and efficacy. I'm not saying we should get rid of preemption or we should get rid of the Vaccine Injury Compensation Fund or necessarily even get rid of the preemption provision, but I think it makes sense now to think about modernizing it and perhaps you know being able to leverage all these advancements in big data and electronic health records and using that to the advantage. And if we're able to do so, maybe that will convince some vaccine skeptics that you know, you know, despite what they may think about industry or the government, the government is actively doing something to make sure, you know, the vaccines are as safe and effective as possible. Well, thank you very much, Afimi. And on this theme of modernizing uh, legal frameworks, I just wanted to quickly get in um, a discussion or your uh, description of your work with respect to advanced research by the military on warfighting methods that involve um, something akin to or direct analogies to medical research on soldiers, such as uh, DARPA plans for direct neural interface implants uh, to enable human-machine or human-to-human communication, um, other uh, enhancements that would allow people, say, to fly nonstop for work nonstop for 20 hours or 40 hours or something like that. If you could... uh, sort of add to our ongoing twill conversation on the common rule and discuss briefly your views on why the military and members, service members might be considered a vulnerable population under uh, revisions to the per- common rule. I think that would be terrific. Thanks, Frank. I- I'd love to talk about that. Um, again, you know, we're in the midst of a revision to the common rule. Um, one of the key issues when it comes to thinking about the common rule is modernizing it, keeping it, uh, making sure that it keeps pace with advancements in science. And I think that, you know, like much over the past five or six decades, when it comes to military science, a lot of what we've seen come out of military science has um, massive implications in, in the civilian side as well. Um, and it, again, over the years, I think it calls into question whether or not service members, members of the armed forces, should be deemed a vulnerable population under the common rule. So, you know, we have, or the common rule today has um, a pretty expansive view of what it means to be a vulnerable population. Um, it doesn't uh, have an exclusive list, so it really has sort of a, a list that um, gives examples of what vulnerable populations are, whether they're pregnant women, fetuses, children, etc. That said, there are other subparts um, that give or provide additional guidelines for or additional protections for vulnerable populations. And, and what I'm looking at is whether or not the service members, one, should at least be identified as a population that is vulnerable to coercion or undue influence and therefore should at least just be identified as a vulnerable population in the common rule itself. And secondly, whether it makes sense to actually have a separate subpart that deals specifically with issues that service members face. I mean, you know, in many ways, the military, um, to use Jonathan Turley's words, acts as a pocket republic, um, lives by its own rules, plays by its own rules, has the Uniform Code of Military Justice. And as we've seen, you know, particularly throughout the 
20th century when we talk about atomic experiments, um, LSD experiments conducted by the military, and other experiments with respect to mustard gas or other chemical and biological weapons, um, service members were an exploited class. And many times, if not in fact every time, when a claim was brought by a service member to seek any type of compensation from the government for alleged harm, those were all thrown out of court under the Ferez Doctrine. Um, you know, the famous case of um, Sergeant Stanley went up to the Supreme Court in the late 1980s, and there, uh, basically, he was one of the one service member who was exposed to LSD uh, without his consent or without his knowledge, ended up destroying his life. Um, and again, the court affirmed this notion that Ferez prohibits any um, any compensation or any legal liability, for that matter, against the U.S. government. And I think as we're looking at what DARPA is doing, when it, whether it's you know human enhancements or brain-to-computer interfaces, we should be thinking about whether or not it makes sense to have this um, this legal liability uh, continue, um, and whether that encourages perhaps riskier behavior on the part of um, government actors or those working with service members. Again, I'll also note that the military or the Department of Defense on its own has created um, additional protections for service members in a way um, underscoring the fact that the Department of Defense itself believes that service members are a vulnerable population. But again, those are internal guidelines that can be changed at any time, and it's not clear what the remedies are if those are breached. And that was this week's The Week in Health Law. A special thank you to Professor Parasitis for joining us. Great fun having you with us, Athimi. Thanks, guys. It's been my pleasure. We post our show notes at twill.com. If you have a moment, please go to iTunes and rate the show. You can contact me at Nicholas Terry on Twitter. And Frank, where can you be reached this week? I can be reached at Frank Pasquale on Twitter. Thank you for joining us and have a legally interesting but healthy week. <laughs>